we often encourage folks within the team to take some time, even in the context of the workday, to reach out and explore new experiences, other businesses, try to understand why, how those businesses operate and why they operate that way to develop maybe that other reference point or that historical uh, reference point as, as you're describing it. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Tom Latin. Tom is the Vice President of Hewlett-Packard Enterprise ProLiant and Cloudline Servers for the multi-billion dollar mass market business. His team leads product, technology, go-to-market, and supplier strategies for these categories. Tom joined HP when it was still one company in 1986, and he has led in any roles almost every side of the business. I have initially collaborated with Tom when he was part of the PC notebook business many years ago, and we have since collaborated on four, maybe five different long-term strategic efforts. I've found and experienced Tom to be a deliberate and thoughtful leader with the capacity to resist the reactivity trap by pursuing strategic clarity and focus. Tom is also a man of faith, and I've learned by observing him how grounding and resilience-building faith can be. Tom, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Hi, Aviv. Thank you. So let's uh, dive right in by asking you first, of all the things you do at work at this time, what do you enjoy most? What is the most energizing aspect for you at work? You know, Aviv, it's probably a bit of a, an uber thought. Uh, it's not a specific task or, or activity that gets me excited each day, but uh, more the theme of, of discovery. And, and I think what I mean by that is, you know, discovering uh, certainly new solutions uh, to problems, whether they're business problems or customers' problems or execution problems, but discovering new ways to solve problems, uh, yes. Uh, but even maybe more invigorating than, uh, than just that is uh, s- discovering new problems to act- that need solving. And by that, I mean understanding the market environment, the customer's context, the, the structure of the industry to identify, uh, discover new, uh, new challenges there that need some horsepower, some mental horsepower, some innovative horsepower applied uh, to, to capitalize on. Would you almost say that you get up in the morning and go to work with a thought or with a frame of mind that that offers something like, I'm curious, what will I discover today? Definitely. Mm. 
So what would you say are some of the conditions or processes or strategies that help you most either discover new solutions or discover new problems that you can solve? You know, I think it's uh, probably different from different people, different personalities and different styles. Uh, for me, what I've found, though, is those discoveries tend to happen in the context of dialogue, uh, dialogue with others within the company, uh, dialogue with partners that are participating in the industry with us, uh, dialogue with our customers. Uh, and, in, and in some cases, it's um, even dialogue with people that have nothing to do with this business or this industry, um, but listening to the challenges that they have or the problems that they're trying to solve and being able to port the insights from that dialogue over into uh, my industry, um, our industry, and the problems that, uh, that, we, that we face. But it, it is, I think it's just in that human interaction mm-hmm. uh, dialogue that, um, that the, the discovery um, can truly, or for me at least, truly comes from uh, most effectively. So this is something that um, I'm very interested in because uh, a core element, as you know so well in the work I do with senior leadership teams, is grounded in this idea that the currency of leadership is conversation. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you reflect on those kind of dialogues that lead to discovery, you can either go to a specific one that you remember, but more broadly, when you, when you reflect on, on the nature of those dialogues, what are some of the elements that enable in, in those dialogues the discovery of new insights, the discovery of new solutions, the discovery of new problems that you can solve? There certainly is uh, you know, one big tool in the toolbox Uh, which is just the word why. So I think when I speak of discovery, I'm not necessarily just speaking of uh, having a conversation with someone and learning, for example, that, um, well, let's see, that they have a, if I'm talking with a colleague, maybe they have a pricing uh, challenge with a particular part of their product line uh, because a competitor has reduced their prices drastically and Uh, now they're faced with the challenge of how do they react, knowing that they've got profit objectives they're trying to fulfill, but also want to compete effectively in the market. And so the, you know, the question why is a simple word, but really gets at what, what are the forces at play underneath the dynamic that we're observing on the surface? Uh, so in that dialogue, we might say, well, you know, why, why do we think that that customer, for example, I mean, that competitor um, has drastically reduced their price? Did they get a cost advantage that they want to take advantage of? Um, are they trying to gain market share? Um, is there some other part of their product portfolio that they want to uh, be able to emphasize as the profit engine and therefore they're willing to go compromise on this piece of it? Um, but what is their motivation? Uh, and then the layers of why um, become even more interesting. You know, once we kind of discover what maybe their motivation has been, then we can test why is this a, a challenge for, you know, my colleague in this case. Um, and then as we understand what their challenges are around profitability or market share or long-term viability of a product portfolio, 
um, then we can test why is that important? Is it part of the corporate strategy? Is it just an assumption that uh, we're making about the objectives of the business or is there something else there? And so by layers of why, what I mean is um, we can understand the primary forces at play, but it's often the second and secondary and tertiary kind of forces at play that uh, is where we can find, really find new insights and, you know, discover new problems or new solutions to problems. So I hear two or three or perhaps four skills or or capabilities or, or elements in what you're describing. First is simply the aptitude to engage in this conversation from a place of curiosity, which is can sound obvious, but is not obvious because a lot of the time people in business, what they actually find themselves, the circumstance people find themselves in is, is one where you need to quickly react. And you have a certain way of refusing to react and, and uh, in, a, in a sense, creating for yourself that space to, as you're describing, and this, this is where the, the toolkit comes into play of asking why, and sometimes asking the, the second and the third why. But then the third dimension in this is, is actually having the, the in-depth knowledge of the, the marketplace, the categories you, you are looking at, and, and also the, the historic trace such that you're able to say, where have I seen something like this before? And you can then transfer knowledge from experiences that enable you to quickly make in the discerning judgment calls as to what could be the motivation. Because in a lot of the circumstances, what you're describing, you won't actually know for sure what is the motivation. You are playing with plausibilities, and that's where your experience and your discernment comes into play. Give me a reaction to what I'm trying to map in that, that's happening, if you like, in the operating system in, in your head while you're engaged in, in a conversation like this. Yeah, I think that is super well framed in terms of the, each of the individual components that is part of the operating system here. If I, if I can build on that last one, um, which I think is the historical reference of where have I seen this before, uh, I think that's something that certainly is, is we benefit from as an organization, I think anybody that's operating within the context of an organization can benefit from not just uh, the leaders necessarily, but everybody within that organization or that team. And where this materializes for, for me is uh, we often encourage folks within the team to take some time, even in the context of the workday, to reach out and explore new experiences other businesses, try to understand why, how those businesses operate and why they operate that way to develop maybe that other reference point or that historical uh, reference point as, as you're describing it. Uh, so for example, how does the local auto uh, dealership run or how does the local um, dry cleaner run, right? And, and why do they operate the way that they do? Um, what processes do they use? How do they draw insights from the market? How do they react to the market? Uh, and it's in those, I think, non-obvious reference points that we can all be exposed to, you know, across a broad spectrum of experiences in our life, um, in, our, in our 
kind of retail uh, consumer life that we can draw insights from that we can apply back into the uh, the businesses that we're engaged in. Indeed, because you are developing a, a capacity to compare and, and uh, look at parallel universes, so to speak, parallel businesses and, and appreciate the, the business model, the, the inputs and, and the outcomes that run the business um, and so on. So, so given that, you know, so much has changed in, in the tech space that you operate in and you've lived most of your, if not the entirety of your professional life yes. uh, for more than three decades. At the same time, you have often in various situations that, that I was present, you said, you, you would say something like, well, this has changed, but here is something that did not change. So what, um, what would you say are some of the important changes that have taken place over the last three decades? And what are some of the more constants in the theater that you operate in? Yeah, maybe a couple of key changes, I think. And, and when we speak about the tech sector, right, in, in my space, it really is the uh, computing, uh, P, what has been the PC industry or the server industry uh, space. And, and I think in, in our um, area, whether we're talking about individual technology component suppliers that would supply things like memory, uh, or solid state drives or networking technology, um, or we talk about the people that are actually producing the products that companies and consumers buy, laptops and desktops and servers and storage systems for data centers. Um, there, there has been a very significant no amount of consolidation of, of companies, of players, at each layer of that technology stack. And so as a result, the individual decisions that get made around um, product and services offerings uh, have significantly higher stakes than you know, they did in the at least early days of my participation in the industry, where you had a lot, a, a much larger number of smaller players kind of computing, competing for space. And um, the decisions that you made certainly had repercussions, but you had an ample opportunity to recover from those um, if, you, if you kind of headed down the wrong path. And so I think now just the, the impact or the magnitude of the implications of individual decisions, I think, are so much higher. The other thing that um, I think has changed quite a bit over the last uh, couple of decades is the value proposition of what companies and consumers are buying have significantly moved up, um, we would call it up stack, uh, from individual products and components uh, to true experiences. And the experiences then are a function not of what typically comes just from one company, but from the integration of uh, product and service offerings across multiple companies. And so we usually describe that, you know, as the the experience, the ecosystem experience. And therefore, the amount of collaboration across the industry that's necessary to realize the winning experience for for the customer 
is amped up, right? Takes significantly higher amount of, I think, cross industry collaboration to to pull that off. It's not just a you know a winning product play anymore. Right, right. What are some of the things that did not change that are um, true today and and were true uh, two or three decades ago in in your space? Yeah, I think it's, um, there's one, it's a very, maybe a technical point of view, uh, but many people are familiar with what's articulated as Moore's law, right? The, the uh, progression of computing capability from generation to generations of the, the microprocessor. And um, I think there are, there are two other laws, if you will, that have been quite timeless in the tech industry. Um, and they both had to do with, I mean, they're similar, um, different technical attributes, but they had to do with economics. And the first one is, first of all, you know, everything in the tech industry, uh, I think today everybody's got an appreciation that it's all about data. Um, it's about how we move data, store data, process data, uh, collect data. So the, the first law is that the, the bandwidth or the amount of data that we can move or process will never be infinite and will certainly never be free. And then the kind of the second attribute is in a technical thing about how responsive is the thing that I'm trying to, to use to get something done with data. And we speak about that as latency. Uh, and so in the same way that we say bandwidth will never be late, uh, will be infinite and never be free latency or the time it takes to accomplish something will never be zero, nor will it ever be free, right? To, to get close to zero. And it seems it's, you know, it's a little bit hard to, to believe that if you think about how uh, rapidly technology evolves and our experiences evolve, um, you know, we go from audio phone calls to video calls, and those are, you know, so prevalent and very functional. Um, we go from being able to, um, you know, make a request uh, of a company many years ago and have to wait for a, you know, a piece of mail to come back to us, physical mail to come back to us with a response. And now we can get an instantaneous response in a chat uh, field, right, on a website. Uh, so it feels like latency is getting closer and closer to zero and bandwidth is getting more and more infinite. Um, but I believe that the, the power of human ingenuity to completely consume whatever the next generation of bandwidth and low latency is will far outstrip our ability to create more bandwidth and to reduce latency so that there's always going to be this insatiable demand to increase bandwidth and reduce latency. And therefore, we will never effectively get to zero latency and we will never get to infinite bandwidth. And it will always have an eco economic price associated with pushing the envelope on those two fronts. Is this something, that, is this something that has a name or this is called the Latin law? Well, we could call it the Latin law. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. I think, and, and, and maybe, you know, the second thing um, is we think about less about kind of the technical um, geekiness of this and more about the, the business structure and the business models. Uh, I believe it you know, has been from the earliest days of, of the, the tech sector, um, even through today, the disruptor, the, the one that's changing, not just the technology, but the business models and fundamentally how we engage with the market. The one that the disruptor 
has been and is today, and I think always will be admired, right? We, mm. we kind of look with admiration for the companies that figure that out and figure out the next great way to do something. And, and in the process of doing that, um, in many cases, render the prior version of that space in the industry as irrelevant. I've also um, seen you often reflect on the, the kind of uh, false assumptions or misunderstandings that you observe in, in the space and, and when we are in strategic debates about plausible futures, which, which we'll talk about in a minute. And, and you may have already referenced some of that, but what would be an example, if, if you can offer one, where we, we tend to be captured by the hype of the moment and perhaps as a result of that, conclude a series of arguments that, that are actually premised on a false assumption where the inquiry and the retrospective reflection could be important because it, it can actually uh, emancipate us from, uh, from those um, false ideas. What, what would be an example that you could offer to that? You know, I think um, as, as part of a large company that started out as a very small company, uh, quite frankly, I've seen a, uh, a set of behaviors that uh, I would almost use an analogy. Uh, what, are, what are a couple of uh, kind of cultural context here? Let's, let's use uh, Germany and Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, in the case of uh, a Germany, culturally, uh, there's a strong adherence to what the rules are. Uh, in other words, if, you know, if there's a line in the street and the line dis delineates where cars go where, and where bicycles go, you will always find cars on the car side and you'll always find bicycles on the bicycle side. Jamaica, there are certainly laws and rules, uh, but for the most part, they're a little bit optional. <laughs> if you right. Uh, and and I think that uh, where I've found in within our kind of larger company contexts that we often get trapped in kind of the the false set of assumptions. In many cases, it's not even false assumptions about the market, but it can be false assumptions about what the what the current set of rules and constraints are. Right. Um, and and we we carry forward rules and constraints from the historical context, context um, that don't apply anymore. And, and it's almost just a, a kind of a, not intuitive as much, but implicit kind of uh, assumption that, uh, that we make. And so I think it's important, you know, kind of the key insight of the learning there is whatever our current situation is, um, that we've got to be able to reach, um, reach back and, and identify, maybe even name the assumptions that we're making about the historical context so we can validate which ones still apply and which ones no longer apply. Um, and, and in that case, behave a bit more Jamaica-like um, and less German-like. Yeah, very curious. I thought when you started talking about Germany and Jamaica that you're going to make a case why the Germans excel in soccer <laughs> and the Jamaicans are uh, obviously they, they have the best sprinters uh, in, in the world for many years. So, but it, perhaps and, and, there is and, and bobsled teams apparently right. So yeah. perhaps there is a link there. Very curious. Yeah, we have, as I mentioned, collaborated on several long-term strategy efforts, 
And those included the landscape assessment, articulation of uh, megatrends, and then often the development of Horizon 3 and Horizon 2 uh, play-to-win strategies. And uh, let me ask two questions here and let you uh, thread and, and weave whatever comes to mind. First, what are some of the most misunderstood points about strategy development and, and fashioning a strategy? And, and secondly, what are some of the memorable learnings for you that you've been able to internalize and operationalize from the, the kind of strategic practices and, and exercises that um, you've participated in? Yeah, if I, so let's talk about uh, the first uh, questions about strategy development. Uh, what was intriguing to me in our interactions, Aviv, is, uh, you know, I've, uh, prior to us working together, I've done quite a bit of strategy development. Uh, and, and I would say that that work had, had largely followed a fairly linear progression, right, of understanding the context, doing some analytics, considering alternatives, identifying the best uh, best alternative or alternatives and shaping that into a direction and then describing that, right, as that is now our strategy. And in the work that we've done together, certainly the the starting point was was similar and the ending point was similar, but the in-between points um, have been quite different. Uh, I think in terms of the, the impro- approach that, that you've infused in the teams that, uh, that I've worked with, that you've been, um, you know, part of guiding us. And, um, and what's different about that is uh, two dimensions. Uh, one, um, it's, we haven't gone linear from front to or start to finish. Um, instead, we've taken two different deviations. The first deviation is um, as we've evolved a particular phase of the planning process or the strategizing process, um, we've often stopped and gone back and retested where we were on the prior phase, if you will. Um, and so it's, it, you know, there's been an iterative loop there. The second piece is you've taken us regularly on deviations off the road. And um, so you haven't encouraged, nor have you even allowed, right, the process to even even in an iterative cycle of going along a path and then cycling back and going along the path a little further and cycling back. That would be one approach. But instead, um, you you've taken us off on other intellectual explorations, right, of um, that may not be germane to the particular strategy we work on. We're working on, um, but seem to be opening up paths in the brain um, by forcing us to, to work on other problems or other parts of our own personal growth and development or reflections on other experiences that we've had in, in our life, you know, at, at home, at church, at, you know, in social environments or even in the work environment. And so those deviations, I believe, um, have, have a powerful effect on expanding the kind of points of, of view, the perspectives, w- so that when we return back into the, the next cycle of the strategy iteration, 
um, there's a richer set of context that we're bringing into that. And that was, I would say, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of key um, insight there, uh, not something that I had anticipated nor even recognized when we were doing it as much as in hindsight, kind of looking back to the approach that we've used. And so that, I think that, you know, typical perspective that, uh, that developing strategy is a very linear process would be one of the you know, I would call it now misunderstandings of what rich strategy development looks like. Indeed. So the, there are two dimensions indeed that um, come into what you're describing. The first is, is simply that, as, as you're describing, we, we did not follow the linear path. We actually often would start the exploration in the future state and explore different plausible futures and work backward from those futures by inquiring what will have to be true to facilitate and enable these futures to emerge. And, and part of that exploration indeed includes the analysis or the, the evaluation of um, how the market will shapeshift, where are the profit pools, what con control points may be available for you and who else developed for themselves other control points in the ecosystem. And so all that happens in that exploration. And, and the other dimension you're describing actually does have, if you like, a, um, a brain science dimension to it because part of the impulse in that design is the discovery, but discovery that, that I've made through my own journey with myself and then working with, with many teams, that when we are able to step into the learning zone and by calling something the learning zone, what we really are talking about, we're talking about the, the frontier of what we know, the space where we are engaged in and engaging the liminal process where we step to the edge of what we know about ourselves, about each other, about the domain we are exploring, and actually allowing ourselves to sometime dance from the exterior back to the interior and then back to, once again, to the exterior. By doing that dance, what we are able to squeeze are new, as you, as you describe, perspectives, viewpoints, connections in our own brains, but also connections between the different brains around the table. And so the byproduct of that is, is a co-creative emergent learning and discovery and innovation process that uh, as a result of which we also are building a whole new level of collaboration and, and team buy-in and, and uh, sense of uh, ownership because we've developed those solutions together. So all of the above uh, is is a byproduct to, you know, we essentially the brief is let's develop a strategy, but in the process we are building the team, building the individual's self-insight uh, and, and, and knowledge and all those things are a bonus on, on the ride. So yeah, it's, it's been an exhilarating journey uh, with a number of your teams. And, and I think, I mean, you speak about the key personal development and insights and learning uh, function. So one of, one of the things that's been intriguing to me is when we've engaged in exercises to develop 
either a set of alternative uh, actions or dimensions of a strategy, um, or even to prioritize the available alternatives that we've developed to try to make a selection on what direction will we head. And we've, we've been able to pull teams together. And I've been surprised by how effective it is to just tap into the collective intuition and experience of the team without necessarily needing to have a, a you know really rich set of of analytics and um, well and not even you know super linear thinking, but instead have a time uh, bounded exercise in many cases where we force people to uh, as part of the team to take a position and defend a position and then we move on to the next and we move on to the next and we move on to the next um, and in a pretty rapid sequence of exercises we get to a very rich outcome which uh, quite often I've found that my initial reaction is that's not the outcome I expect we would expected we would have landed on right based on my own experience and intuition but as we've played out uh, many of these directions uh, the reflection in hindsight that I have is wow that was a great strategy outcome right and it's a function of the collective intuition under a time-bounded pressure model um, that that I think has produced wonderful results. Why do you think you were surprised by it? What was the nature and the reason of the surprise for the surprise? Uh, because I'm probably for me because I'm an engineer by training, which means you know you you sit down and kind of work step by step through a problem quite often by yourself, uh, and so. Being able to uh, to have you know a body of people that's a little bit more kind of intuition based and less linear thinking and analytics based uh, that for me that was that was surprising. Indeed, so part of the design that enable enables us to create these kind of outcomes is indeed creating a safe environment and an environment in which people are encouraged to step into what we sometimes call zero gravity thinking. Mm -hmm. And we specifically frame on the front end the idea that please don't be shy and don't hold back, back what would otherwise be a half-baked idea because your half-baked idea may be or thought, half-baked thought, may be exactly the, the stimuli that will trigger the other half or the complementing idea that will together develop to a, a new alternative that was not imagined before. So in essence, we are, what we're doing in those sessions, and, and part of it is actually stepping away from the run-the-business machinations and routine that people are often and most of the, the work days find themselves in. And, and we are saying, let's create a process, let's create an ecology, let's create a space where we allow our, ourselves to be in those kind of dialogues and where nothing said can be considered stupid or dumb because we actually want you to, to lean into those incomplete thoughts where at the crossroads or, or at the, the interweaving 
parallel spaces of, of different brains and different minds in the room in, as you're describing, conversation that is accelerated because we have a, a solution or a, or a prototype that we need to produce within 20 minutes or half an hour. And that somehow, I, I find time and again, facilitates and, and catalyzes uh, the novelty in, in people's um, semi and unconscious uh, ideation process. And, and it, it, I agree with you. It, it's quite extraordinary and, and exhilarating to see what can sometime emerge. Yeah, it works well. It works really well. So in your working with teams as a leader, what are some of the Given what we are describing, what are some of the core practices that you have embraced and made your own to, to promote the best in the people working for you, recognizing that different people are wired differently and your job as a, as a leader of leaders is to, to promote the best out of them? Yeah, I think there are a few things. For, uh, first of all, you know, we certainly rec- have to recognize that all of us have got diverse backgrounds, whether they're cultural, family, business, uh, academic, social, right? We've, we've all got a different set of experiences that uh, we frame um, our view of whatever lies in front of us, business challenge, family challenge, social challenge, et cetera. Uh, and so making sure that we are uh, bringing the, the collective set of experience forward uh, necessitates that as, as leaders, we're working to um, do, I think, a bit of what you just described, Aviv, making sure that there's a, a sense or, or a confidence that we've got an environment that is safe and that we can all be trusted and therefore uh, ideas and expressions or insights can be, can be surfaced, right? People will, will bring those forward. I think that, you know, second thing for me is, is working with teams to make sure that we focus on the outcome that it is that we're trying to create, not defining the outcome with so much degree of specificity that the steps along the way to the outcome are predefined, but that we align on the general principles of the outcome uh, first. Uh, and from that, I think we get to uh, creative, innovative solutions. I love the the uh, uh, BHAG tool, right? Big, mm-hmm. hairy, audacious goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think when we uh, that in similar to what you just described as terms of drawing out the creativity with a you know a time bound exercise of uh, ideation, uh, I think when we when we start with a BHAG, something that feels so astronomically unachievable, then we challenge ourselves to think about what must be true for that outcome to occur, and in the process, we often discover new insights. Uh, about what our, in this case, maybe what our strategy should be. Um, so I think uh, B- BHAGs are intellectually stimulating. And I, and I see that across, um, you know, a broad set of uh, folks with different amounts of experience and different types of experience. You know, maybe the, the last one for me is making sure that uh, as we're working with folks on the team, that we look for opportunities to move them out of their comfort zone. You do this in the context of the the teams that you help facilitate and orchestrate by creating new situations, challenging us to take on tasks in the moment that we haven't uh, haven't done before and are uncomfortable with, 
Um, but I think, you know, in the broader kind of view of uh, team orientation, like, you know, that I, I work with, um, it's about having people take on roles that aren't necessarily obvious uh, to them, um, especially where they're roles where they think that they're ill-equipped for, um, because I think that that, that kind of creates a little bit of this uncertainty and, you know, well, let's try some crazy things because obviously, you know, crazy ideas, because obviously the ideas that I've got aren't well-tuned to this. I think all of those uh, kind of tools, if you will, are kind of cut from a similar cloth of uh, looking for the non-obvious, intellectually challenging, experience-challenging kinds of um, moments for people. Indeed. Indeed. You mentioned there, Tom, that everybody shows up at the table with their unique and often varied experience, set of experiences, and also set of challenges. I know that you have had your share of grappling with challenges, including health challenges with some of the members of uh, your family. Yes. Um, there are many who go through their life and aspire to lead competitive professional career and work hard to keep everything else outside of the professional arena. But the reality is in every situation, you are a whole person. And as you mentioned, we each come to the table with a set of um, professional and personal experiences. And I know from, from you because you've been open with me about the, the kind of challenges that you needed to grapple with. And what always impressed me is how you are grounded inside those circumstances and, and how you're able to operate and be resiliently hopeful. So I'd appreciate if you can offer some, some comments about what it is that enable you to uh, approach both life and work in this way. Yeah, certainly. And Aviv, I think this will be very different uh, for different people in terms of what particular attribute or attributes are important to them. Uh, for me, the uh, dimension of my personality that, that I think I hold as, as uh, sacred um, is a sense of service. And, you know, for others, it, it could be different things. And so I'm not necessarily suggesting that everybody needs to have a service uh, orientation, but, but for me, it is. And I think it's that sense of service that inspires me in spite of whatever challenges might be in front of me. So, for example, you know, we talk about medical issues uh, that uh, family members uh, have been going through in my family. It's my desire or my passion to do whatever is necessary to help them to a better outcome than what they might be on a trajectory to do on their own. And in the same way of kind of port that over, you know, into the work environment, I definitely view um, my part of my leadership style as being one that is focused on serving the members of the team, certainly, as we've talked about, kind of challenging them and pushing them to um, new spaces, uh, but then being in a, in a support role to them uh, to bring new ideas to life or new objectives that they have to bring those to life. 
whether it's in, you know same same kind of thing in the community, right? If there are opportunities to serve uh, members of the community, then that's kind of a guiding light for me. And so I kind of talk you know those about those different dimensions to highlight that in the face of uh, any kind of challenges that I feel like I'm facing or those that are around me that are facing that have an inf- you know effect on me, as I've reflected on what it is that keeps me oriented and um, incented and motivated to to kind of punch through in spite of, in some cases, very significant challenges. I believe it is that sense of trying to be as selfless as I can to serve uh, others and as a result, have a, a purpose um, that I'm striving for there. It's kind of bigger than what any of the challenges themselves are. Right. So let's try to, if, if we can, just uh, take one layer deeper in this inquiry, because you are describing the orientation of servant leadership. Can you try to describe what is the, the operating system, if I can use this term, what, what goes on in, in your head? What, what is it that you are looking at? What is it that you are inquiring as you face challenging circumstances such that you're able to step into that servant or service orientation. Now, you may just tell me now, it's, it's natural for me. I am oriented in this way by nature as a result of my journey or my faith. And if, if that's the case, then that's a sufficient answer. I'm, I'm, I'm interested if, if there is any particular set of processes or interior strategies that you engage when you face such circumstances that enable you to offer the service that you're describing? Yeah, I think I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to opt on, opt in on your, it's okay to just say it's how I'm wired. Um, but it's, but I didn't, it's not something that I uh, would say that I, I've known forever. Okay. Uh, in other words, it's, it's only in relatively recent reflection, I think of about what has kept me motivated, strong, resilient, if you will, um, in the face of some, you know, pretty substantial challenges that that uh, have have come my way and my family's way outside of from outside of my control. Um, that that I recognized uh, in hindsight this service orientation as being the guiding light there for me. Right, right. In what way would you say faith? Is, is part of this. And another way of asking the question is, how do you integrate your faith to your personal and professional life? Yes, um, if you and I have uh, worked together for a while, um, you know that I, I have a, a, what I think is a fairly rich uh, faith life. Um, I, I serve as a, a deacon in our church um, and have gone through quite a bit of preparation um, to take on that role as well. Uh, academic as well as uh, theological, um, pastoral, uh, a lot of preparation and formation for that role. And I used to think about, uh, I think as many of us do, uh, the balance between, we would say, our work life and our home life, or we speak of work-life balance. And in that preparation for service as a deacon, I reached a point in my own reflection there that that model wasn't going to work for me. In other mm-hmm. words, I couldn't, I couldn't think just about and operate just as 
an employee at work and a husband and a father at home and, you know, a deacon uh, minister at church. But what I needed to do was to, to truly integrate all phases of my life. Mm. Um, and so I would, you know, describe this as the, you know, I've, about having to um, truly be the whole person all the time. And so I'm husband and father all the time. And unfortunately, I'm employee all the time. <laughs> we all, that's a, a function of, I think, our modern day uh, world. Yes. We're, we're easily accessible at all points in time and a, a minister or a deacon all the time, which means that the, in the same way that I would behave on the altar at church, I need to be very conscious of the fact that I'm behaving the same way um, at home with my family and at work in the conference room environment, for example. Um, and so I think there's that authenticity of, of integrating um, all dimensions of, um, of our life experience and being able to commit to kind of truly uh, being that authentic whole person at all, all moments there. That's beautifully said. And indeed, the, the model of authenticity and congruency that you're describing is so much more resilient and, and anti-fragile uh, than the, the binary equation that, that is totally outdated. What would you say you are working on in yourself at the moment in the context that you are describing as a leader, as a, as a whole person? Yeah, I think, well, uh, my wife and I are, um, as of about uh, 24 hours ago, um, we, uh, we are transitioning into uh, the empty nest phase of life. Um, we were able to help our, our youngest child, our daughter, move in um, to her dorm room to begin her freshman year of college. And so that's, uh, that certainly is going to be a transition for us that, uh, that we'll be working on together. I think that there's, uh, there's, there's also, for me, a business context as well. So my, I've been fortunate in many of the roles that I've had over the last several decades to have responsibilities for tasks or functions or areas of our business that are important in terms of the impact that they can have, but not necessarily always being in the limelight, which has afforded me the opportunity to manage kind of my own balance between uh, strategy and planning and execution. And the, you know, the part of the business that I'm uh, responsible for today also has a very high impact on the overall uh, results of the company, but it's also but but in addition to that, it now is very visible and high profile part of the business, and therefore uh, there are a lot of expectations on execution details, which you know for me personally becomes a, an even larger struggle on the tension between strategy and execution, mm -hmm. um, and and that's a kind of a big pull to the execution side. Uh, so. Um, you know, my, my uh, kind of active development right now is working out how to meet the needs and expectations of many stakeholders in the company to ensure that we're executing with excellence, but be able to still have the, the space and the time and the, uh, the flexibility to 
chart the direction and the you know future part of uh, future direction for the business. Indeed, strategy is great, but in the end of the day, execution is often the differentiating factor. When when you meet uh, the, the challenging environment and and the competition, so that's yes. right. We often I think I think we say execution trumps strategy any day of the week, right? Yes. Uh, with all that uh, you know today, Tom, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? <laughs> that sounds like fun, since I've got kids in their uh, late teens and 20s now. So <laughs> I feel like I'm giving advice like this every day. Okay. The, the, uh, uh, first of all, uh, don't be too serious. There are many, uh, many courses of our careers, many courses of our life uh, that may play out. And yes, the individual decisions that we make at any one point in time may have a huge impact on the ultimate direction that we go. But that doesn't mean that we should get so uh, caught up in every individual decision um, because of the implications. Uh, we've got to we've got to make choices and then and then live with the the outcome of those choices. And and so part of that is experiencing life, uh, not getting so serious that we're constantly trying to orchestrate life. Mm. I think in, on this you know, theme of discovery related to that for me is the theme of learning. Uh, and so I know you, you are a super uh, advocate for this, um, which I admire a lot. Um, and quite frankly, probably kind of even influenced my thinking on this a bit. Um, but uh, to focus on lifelong learning. So as a 25-year-old, typically we've, we're either recently graduated from, uh, from college or maybe we're on the verge of graduating from college or another degree. And so it's easy to think about uh, saying, wow, that phase of my life is behind me. Now it's time to get on with the doing. And uh, the doing, I believe, is uh, so much richer throughout our life if we are constantly looking for the next uh, learning experience which may be directly related to what we're doing in our jobs, or it may be completely unrelated to what we're doing in our jobs. Uh, my family knows that, you know, for me, one of the things that I, you know, I want to take up next is uh, to learn how to play the guitar. Hmm. Um, not, not something that, uh, that I know much about today. I dabbled in a little bit as a kid, didn't really progress very far. And I feel like, well, that's something I'd love to pick up again. So yeah, lifelong learning, I think is important for sure. If you were to lose Tom, all that you know, and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, what would you keep? Yeah, I think this, uh, let me, let me uh, highlight one that I think you are a, not just a believer in, but a super strong advocate for, which is the power of reflection. Mm. Um, and I know you speak of it uh, quite often with a couple of different analogies, uh, but I think that that is uh, the many insights for me over the last, you know, probably 10 years or so. I'm thinking about my preparation and formation for ministry. I'm thinking about work with you that we've done on teams, um, dynamics, and strategy development. Uh, thinking about my experience as a parent and um, how to advise and guide our, our you know, children as they've grown up. Um, the power of reflection is so prevalent in all of those domains. Mm. And uh, reflection being focused on not just what happened, 
but why did why did that happen, and how did it conform to what I, my expectations would have been going into whatever the experience is? How did it deviate from that, and and why did it conform, or why did it deviate? Uh, because that's where I think our the next iteration of our decision making gets even richer because we've been able to contemplate what's transpired. You know, at a macro level, it's probably a bit like, you know, really, really studying history as opposed to just learning history. Mm. Um, I think when we just learn history, we can, we can speak about dates and people and sequences of events. When we study history, it means we're, we're really getting underneath the forces that were at play that uh, cause the outcomes to occur that, you know, that we observe. And so this, you know, reflection, um, it, it could be as simple as reflecting on a meeting and the way that a meeting uh, played out, um, or it could be reflecting on a project, or it could be lo- reflecting on a, you know, a large life experience. And, and all of those are opportunities to learn about ourselves um, and learn about uh, the human situation and the way that people interact with each other to, to make us more informed or to allow us to be more informed, you know, when faced with similar circumstances in the future. Beautiful. I think you asked for two, but that was one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Tom, uh, for this uh, rich conversational journey uh, with you today. As we bring this to landing, what uh, parting wisdom do you want to offer to people listening to create new futures? A uh, two two simple things for me. Um, one is I think that um, in, in general, uh, you know, life is richer when we focus on experiences, not on things. Um, and by experiences, I mean you know seeking out unique experiences, whether they're uni- unique to us because they're not things that we've done before, um, or even better when they're they're unique to the world, right? Because then we can immerse ourselves in an experience and then use that to to help teach and inform others. And then the, the second, you know, maybe uh, just kind of a grand Uber thought that ties into the way we think about strategy and seek out discovery and lifelong learning and, you know, big, hairy, audacious goals, kind of all those themes tied, to get, tied together. Um, I would say, I think we ought to all try to put ourselves in a mindset of not being afraid to change the world. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. This well, is pretty you're welcome, awesome. Aviv. Yeah, you're welcome, Aviv. Always fun to, to spend time together with you. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. Tom is energized by discovery, the discovery of new insights, the discovery of new solutions, and the discovery of new problems to solve. Because he brings this frame of mind and know-how to work, his experience at work is rich and energizing. What is your energizing factor? What frame of mind will rejuvenate you this week? Life is just too short to simply spend your most precious hours on a job merely to pay the bills. Discover and apply the mental model and the approach that will engage you in your work in a whole new way. Second, Tom pointed at the importance of surfacing and naming clearly the assumptions we operate by so that we can then specifically challenge those assumptions 
in terms of which are still valid and which must be updated. This is an important practice. In what aspect of your work and your life are you running on autopilot and therefore minimizing your opportunity to realize an even greater potential? What assumptions must you challenge and update? What specific opportunity do you have this week to engage key people in your world in assumptions challenging conversations? Identify the first opportunity and overtly frame the conversation by asking, what are the assumptions that govern the way we operate here? Which of these must we update? Third, Tom is grounded in service, his service to others in facilitation to their growth, and betterment is his purpose. It is a purpose that provides perspective and resilience and energy. What overarching and renewing purpose inspires and propels you? Spend some time this week reflecting on these questions. Develop a revitalized sense about your purpose. Begin every day this week with these thoughts in mind. What is my purpose today? How can I express and live into this purpose through my interactions? Pay attention. You will be getting distinct clues in all sorts of ways when you converse with other people, while driving, while exercising, and in other places and circumstances where you least expect it. Be open to listen inside as you discover and attune yourself to purpose. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore your purpose and to discover how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.